This Torah class is brought to you by TorahAnytime.com. Restart. Welcome, everybody. I hope everybody had a very inspirational, amazing Rosh Hashanah. But more so is that you had a better Rosh Hashanah up there. Because sometimes over here, we feel like we had a bad Rosh Hashanah, and it really was the best Rosh Hashanah we ever had. And other times, we feel like we had the best Rosh Hashanah, and unfortunately, it spells for not the best Rosh Hashanah up there. So all I can say is that we hope that we had the best Rosh Hashanah for up there, and we should be inscribed for a life of, of goodness, of happiness, of success, of just like everything that your heart desires, may God grant it for the best. So, on Rosh Hashanah, I was learning a Sefer by Rabbi Yisachar Fran. Rabbi Yisachar Fran is a, a, you know, from, from Neri Sral in uh, Baltimore, from Yeshiva Neri Sral in Baltimore, and it, took me by like, like it was such simple yet profound things that I decided I want to, you know, share that information that I was learning on Rosh Hashanah. So a big chunk of what we're going to be speaking about today is from Rabbi Yisachar Fran. And that is, you know, getting ready for, during these days, it really depends on where you're holding on in life and, and how you see the importance of these days and everybody on their own level. But you have, the importance of these days is, is everybody knows about it. There's just some people focus on it a lot more. Other people, it's just like any other Thursday of the week. It's any other th- Sunday. It's any other Shabbat. It's like there's not much changes. But it really, really pays for one to contemplate, to think about it because these are, these are days where we have the opportunity to sort of make some major changes in what was decreed up there. So when you're going and you're preparing for these days and you're contemplating on these days, you, you get to a little bit of a different self sense of awareness, let's call it. And that's really what we want to discuss today, the different sense of awareness that we have. So to start off, we're going to start off with something called Kol Nidre. Kol Nidre, whoever is familiar with the prayers, the davening on Yom Kippur, that's how it starts. It starts with Kol Nidre. And it's something very interesting that even if you have somebody who is not so religious or maybe were religious at a certain point in time and then went and they're only going to shul one or twice, once or twice a year, we know it's Rosh Hashanah Yom Kippur. But what part of Yom Kippur are they actually coming? They're coming in in the Kol Nidre part. Everybody knows Kol Nidre. And it's something very interesting that Kol Nidre sticks out as a prayer that everybody, everybody knows. There's also something very interesting that I didn't know until I read this, is that when you're praying and you're going to different, uh, you know, synagogues, shuls to pray, to daven, you hear different uh, nigunim, different uh, melodies for different, uh, you know, for the, for the prayers. But there's one prayer that is almost universal, the melody. And that is Kol Nidre. Kol Nidre, wherever you're going, it has more or less the same type of nigun, the same type of melody. And it's something very interesting. What sticks out so much about this? You think that this is a prayer, you know, for, I'll give you an example. There's a prayer called Unisana Toikif. Unisana Toikif, this is like a, a very moving prayer. You know, there's a prayer that usually brings many, many people to tears when they're, you know, when they pray for this, when they're praying this prayer on Rosh Hashanah, for example. And the background for this prayer is also very powerful. The background to this prayer was there was a rabbi by the name of Rabbi, rabbi Amron. And he was from Germany, uh, talking about, about about a thousand years ago. 
and there was a bishop over there that summoned this rabbi and they wanted to offer him a minister position in the you know in, in the church or in the government and the condition was is that the rabbi had to convert to Christianity now obviously this comes with a lot of prestige with a lot of honor with a lot of wealth and Rabbi Abnon, he if refused. He's like, are you kidding me? He's like, I'm not going to leave Judaism to go to Christianity. I don't care what you're going to give me. I'm not leaving. And the bishop kept on trying to push him. You know, one time after another time after another. And he kept on declining it. Until one day, the bishop asked again, the rabbi. He said, will you go and you convert to Christianity and become a minister? And the rabbi said, Rabbi Abnon said that he needs three days to consider this, this offer. So, he said, fine. And this, the moment that Rabbi Amaron guy came home, he's, he was, he's like, what, what did I just do? He made a, he felt like he made such a terrible mistake. He says, why did I say three days? I should have said it immediately. No, I'll never do it. Why did I say three days? So, he was very, very troubled by this and he spent the next three days in, in prayer to, you know, to, to God to sort of, you know, as, as an atonement for what he said. Three days go by, the bishop comes, comes back and he says, okay, three days are up, so what do you, uh, what do you decide? And the rabbi goes and says, what do I decide? He says, really, what you should really do is you should cut out my tongue for saying that I needed three days. I would never ever convert to Christianity. I'm going to stay a Jew. I was born a Jew. I'm going to die a Jew. And the bishop wasn't very happy about it. Then he went and the bishop angrily went and he took Rabbi Amnon and he went and he cut off his hands and feet and then he sent him home. This was a few days before Rosh Hashanah. When Rosh Hashanah comes, Rabbi Amnon, he was dying at this point from his wounds, and he asked to be carried to Shul, to the synagogue, and he wished to say, like a Kedusha, to sanctify God's name before he returns his soul to his maker. And they brought him to the Shul, to the synagogue, and the last prayer that he uttered before he returned his soul to his maker was the prayer Unisana Toikif. And this prayer Unisana Toikif is a very emotional prayer. Speaks about who knows who's going to live, who's going to die, and how you're going to die, and who's going to be wealthy, and who's going to... There's so many different things that really bring a person to emotion. So a prayer like that, we understand that is very popular. A lot of people know it, a lot of people can touch, you know, can, can feel connected to it, sort of, in an emotional sense. But when you think about Kol Nidre, Kol Nidre has nothing to do between, you know, the, the scales of dangling between life and death. It's in fact a very, very technical prayer. It's a simple prayer of a cancellation of various forms of vows, of Nidalim, Kol Nidre, of various different types of vows that we made with our mouth of the preceding year. So when we think about it, why is it that Kol Nidre becomes such a high priority? Why do we start off the holiest day of the year? The most holiest time of the year, we're going and we're starting off with Kol Nidre. So the Vush Mordechai goes and explains, there are three categories to the mitzvot. Generally, we're very, very familiar with two of them. Two of them is the very, very common ones, and one of them is between you and God. Another mitzvah is between you and your friend, between man to man. And then, says the Levush, Mordechai, there is a third category. And the third category is that there is a category of mitzvah between you and yourself. Meaning that there's a category between you and God. There's a category between you and your friend, and there's a category between you and yourself. And that, an example of that is taking an oath. Taking an oath, you're giving your word. And the, the quality of your word is what defines who you are. So the structure of the Yom Kippur davening begins with Kol Nidre. The main theme of the day. Listen to this brilliant idea. The main theme of the day 
is a confrontation with ourselves in front of God. We're very busy on, on, on between us and God, and, and rightfully so. We're very busy between us and our friends, and rightfully so. But we forget one very, very integral, important aspect to Yom Kippur, and that is between us and ourselves. And obviously, I'm not speaking in an egotistical matter. Because when you think about it, how, off, how, how much time do we really spend with ourselves? What I mean by that is not spending it alone. Because when most people are alone, they're on some sort of gadget, phone, tablet, computer, laptop, whatever it is, and they're never fully alone. When was the last time that you were alone with your thoughts and you actually thought? Now there's a difference between thinking and letting your mind roam freely. But when was the last time that we had a confrontation with ourselves? Just like, hey, you know, where are you holding? <laughs> like, what's going on with you? Like, what's going on? Where, where's your spiritual state? You know, in the, in the olden days, when I say the olden days, even, you know, growing up, if you were traveling, you went to Yeshiva, I remember taking the, bu- the city bus to Yeshiva, there was no music device. I mean, we had cassette players, but there was no, this was even before that with the CD players. Like, there was no, and most people didn't carry along those things. You were just, you know, you had your own thoughts and you thought about it. Nowadays, you go and you see people on the train or on the bus, or even not on a, even if they're driving in their car, they're not alone for a second. They have either a podcast playing, they have either a radio station playing, maybe they're playing on their phone a game, maybe they're watching something on their phone, maybe they're listening to music. Of course, there's positive aspects of this, and they're listening to Shio Torah. Uh, you know, there's many on the Torah Anytime app. There's many positive aspects to it. But how often are we alone with ourselves? How often do we stop for a second and we think, and we know what, we're very scared about it. We don't like to think with ourselves. We don't. You, you know, it's something that, that, that scares us, and that's why we want external stimuli. You go to the bathroom for a second and you're taking out your phone. You're going to lay down and you can't find your phone. You feel, you, you feel like you're missing a part of you because you're scared to be with yourself. You're scared to have your own thoughts. You're scared to start having a confrontation with yourself on where you're holding. Nowadays, guilt gets a very, very bad rep. And in fact, when sometimes, especially from a rabbi perspective, when you speak to somebody and try to convince them to do something, he's a rabbi, you're trying to guilt me into doing it? You're trying to guilt trip me into doing this? And the truth of the matter is that a lot of guilt is not good, but guilt is a very, very crucial part to a spiritual development. Guilt the way the rabbi friend goes and explains this, guilt is to the soul as what pain is to the body. Meaning that pain tells you something is wrong. If you're walking and all of a sudden you have a pain on your bottom of your foot, it tells you to stop walking and check it out. Look at it. And it could be there's a nail stuck in there. And if you wouldn't have had that pain, you would have gotten who knows what, you lost some blood and infection and who knows what. So the pain is a very, it's, it's an uncomfortable thing and we don't want it. But it's a very, very positive thing. It's a very, very positive thing for your well-being. Guilt is a very, very positive thing for the soul. Another example is, is, is imagine they develop something, an injection of some sorts, that you'll never get hungry again. So in a sense, you think, that's great. I'll never get hungry, and I won't have, you know, I'll be able to focus on other things in my important stuff in my day. But in a sense, hunger is very important, because what happens if you forget and you're hungry? And, you're, and you're, you don't realize that you're hungry, you could die from starvation. So hunger is a very, very important aspect. Hunger is a very, very crucial aspect to our survival. 
So to guilt, guilt is a very, very crucial aspect to our spiritual well-being. We often try to avoid guilt by rationalizing. Very, very common thing that we do. Before we do a sin, we rationalize it. And after we do a sin, we try to give excuses on how it really wasn't so bad, it was really a mitzvah, whatever it is, however far we go with it. And the truth of the matter is, is that this isn't something original with our generation. This goes back to the first person, Adam HaRishon. Adam HaRishon, God gave him one commandment. Do not eat from that tree. And Adam messed, unfortunately, to, to whatever extent, didn't, wasn't able to keep that commandment. And God said, HaKadosh Baruch Hu said, what did you do? So what was the first thing that, that was responded? So in Bereshit, chapter 3, verse 12, it says, Adam, and, Hashem, and Adam told Hashem, He's talking about me, it's the woman, the woman that you gave me, she gave me to eat. Meaning that we already started with excuses from the beginning. And it didn't stop there. The second sin, Cain, killed his brother Hevel. The Pasuk reads something very interesting, and until I learned this, I never even looked into this. The Pasuk goes and says that when Cain rose up against his brother to kill him, it says in Bereshit, if you want to look it up, this is chapter 4, verse 8. It says, Vayomer Cain el Hevel, Achiv. And Cain told his brother Hevel. And then it goes on, the Pasuk continues, And it says, And Cain got up, and he ended up killing Hevel. So the Pasuk in English translation says like this, It says, And Cain got up, and, to, and said, spoke to, to Hevel, but it doesn't say anything that he said. And then it says that he killed Hevel. The question that is asked is like, what did he say? What was the word that he said? The, the sort of the pasuk starts, and there's like a gap, there's a missing of information. He said something, and then he went and he killed him. But what did he say? Little different interpretations on if you want to look like a Targum Yonasan. But Rabbi Yosef Harari Raful gives a, a very, very beautiful answer. He says, you want to know what he said? What Cain said? It says it's irrelevant what Cain said. That's why the Torah didn't write it down, because it's, it was an excuse. Whatever Cain said, it was, a, it was an excuse. It was irrelevant. The Torah didn't need to write it down. It was a rationalization. So it makes no difference. And if it wasn't this rationalization, it would have been a different rationalization. And if it wasn't that one, it would have been another one. Because an excuse is an excuse. There's no substance to it. It doesn't mean anything. It doesn't, there's no point of writing it. That's why the Pasuk starts off, and he said something. What did he say? It was an excuse. Rationalization. I'm going to do this for X, Y, and Z. Or whatever excuse that he decided that he was going to put. The idea of constantly rationalizing what we're doing, constantly giving excuses of why we're okay, is something that prevents us from doing tshuva. And this is something that I've spoken about this numerous times before, and how when people say, you know, dealing with them, well, not God wanted me to do this sin. No, God didn't want you to do this sin. You want to know why this is such a problematic thought? Because if God wanted you to do this sin, that means you did a sin that is forces beyond your control. And if there's forces beyond your control, so why should you do tshuva? There's a rationalization that you just did. There's an excuse that you just did that God wanted it to happen. Yes, at the end of the day, God allowed it to happen, and we have to learn from it, but God doesn't want you to sin. Hashem doesn't want you to sin. Rab Chaim Friedlander, the late Panovitcher Meshkiach, brings down the story in Avodah Zarah, page 17a. The story of Elazar Ben-Dodaya. Elazar Ben-Dodaya was a very hedonistic person. What I mean by that is that he, he indulged 
in every possible way of pleasure, specifically with women of ill repute. And he came across one woman who was lived in a faraway you know, place across the sea, and she charged a fortune for her services. And he went and he took this long journey, and he paid her very, very handsomely for her services. And before they did the sin, she remarked, she told him, she says that this person, that you're speaking to him, he was so like in, enveloped in this impurity that it would be impossible for him to ever repent. Look, you have here a woman of ill repute that she's giving Musar to her customer. Says so it will never happen that you're going to do tshuva. You'll never be able to do tshuva. The words shook him to the core. It pierced his soul. He was like, wait, you know, like all of a sudden he lost all interest in her, everything, in her services. And he wanted to do tshuva. He wanted to return to Hashem. And this, by the way, is after he already paid for her services. But Elazar ben Dordaya, he felt incapable. He felt that he wasn't able to do tshuva on his own. So he started looking out for help. And the Gemara brings down very interesting. He looked out to the sun and the moon for help. He looked at the stars and the constellation. He looked at the heavens and the earth and the mountains and the hills. But none of them were capable of helping him. The, the way that Rabbi Chaim Friedlander goes and explains this, he says that this was a form of rationalization. What does that mean that he looked at the sun and the moon? Uh, the sun and the moon, he can converse with the sun and the moon. But rather what it means is that look at it for example. The star is the constellation. The sun and the moon. These are things that are permanent and are unchanging. So he was saying, you know why I was sinning like this? It's because of my natural character traits. I was drawn to this. I had this. But they couldn't go and they couldn't help him. The sun and the moon, the stars, they couldn't help him. So he went... And he, and, and he went to the next excuse. He says, you know what? Maybe it's the mountains and the hills. What's the mountains and the hills? That's the parents. The people that raised us. He says, you want to know what my rationale is for doing this? And look at how I was raised. And that's why I fell into this temptation. But they too couldn't get him out of this sin. They refused to help him, so to speak, in the story. So when they refused to help him, he went to something. He went finally to the heavens and the earth. He went through the whole list and he finalized by the heavens and the earth. What was the heavens and the earth? That was the remaining environmental forces, everything around him. He says, you want to know why I sin? is because of the way I grew up. You want to know why I sin? is because of my parents. You want to know why I sin? because of my character traits. He tried everything. He says, it's the sun and the moon, it's the stars of constellation, it's the heavens and the earth, it's the mountains and the hills. And each time he tried to get help from those other aspects, sort of a rationalization, but sort of trying to get help, he was refused. Meaning that at the end of the day, it had nothing to do with the outside forces. Yes, of course, they, you know, they impact a person's desires and they impact a person's upbringing. But at the end of the day, when a person sin, he cannot blame or she cannot blame anything else other than themselves. And finally, Elazar ben Dordaya had to confront himself in the fact that tshuva depended on him and him alone. And he was responsible for the situation that he put himself in. And at that moment, he put his head between his knees and he began crying. And he cried and he cried and he cried, the Gemara says, until his soul departed. And when he passed, a bat call went out, a heavenly voice came out and said, Rabbi, again, it said, Rabbi Elazar ben Dordaya has been accepted to eternal life. When the great Rabbeinu HaKadosh, Rabbi Yehuda Nasi, when he heard this, he cried out and he said, you know what he said? He said, some can attain a, the Olam Haba world to come in a lifetime and some can attain it in one moment.
Here you have that this person, Elizabeth ben Dudaya, that he was merited to even be called a rabbi from that moment of tshuva that he did. Because one of the reasons is that we learn from him. We learn from him the power of tshuva. And you think that, okay, in the times of the Gemara, that's when you can have such a story. But Rabbi Yitzhak brings down from Rabbi Beryl White that tells a story that there was a simulated Jew, that he was traveling in Manhattan, and it was crazy traffic. And he, and he saw a police officer over there. So he rolls down the window and he goes over to the police officer and says, tell me, what's with all this traffic? This non-Jewish, Irish, Catholic police officer goes to him and says, what do you mean, you don't know? He says, today it's Yom Kippur. It's Yom Kippur, all the Jews are praying, so there's a, we have to reroute traffic. This is an assimilated Jew that didn't even know that today was Yom Kippur. That's how far he went. And it shook him to the core that he ended up becoming a Baal Tshuva from that. By realizing how far he has fallen. When you look at Yonah, Yonah was in a, the story that we read on Yom Kippur. He was on a ship. And the ship, he was in a ship full of people that worship Avodazara, idol worshippers. And there was a huge storm. Yonah could have easily said, you want to know why God's angry? God's angry because of all these people that are worshipping idols. They don't realize the one true God. But he didn't say that. Yonah, in the first chapter, in the 12th Pasuk, when the captain goes over and says, why, you know, why are you sleeping? He goes over there and he goes and he says, Ki bishvili gadol It's my fault that you're having this big storm. He took responsibility on himself. He says, I know why this is happening. This is happening because of me. He went and he stood up and he says, this is where I know that I am the one at fault over here for it. And I want to share with you a speech. It's not a long speech. I want to share with you a short, a short speech from a person by the name of Mr. Hillel Gross. This became a very popular speech. This is a speech that was said you know, quite some time ago. And I, I really want to share this with you because it has such a profound effect. It may sound bad initially, but stay with me. So this speech was given by a person by the name of Mr. Hillel Gross. He's a member of the Lincoln Square Synagogue. It's a large and successful shul synagogue in New York City. In the early days of when the shul uh, started, it was, there was a lot of Baal Tshuva over there. And the speech that he gave was at the synagogue, the shul dinner. And he goes over and he addresses sort of the Baal Tshuva. And he goes over to them and he says, I think that somehow it's important that you beginners, you Baal Tshuvas, leave tonight with at least a little sense of how we, the FFBs, which stands for From From Birth, really feel about you. And he goes over to the crowd, a full of Balchuvas, and he looks at them and he says, we don't like you. And he goes on and he says, if you'll indulge me for two or three minutes, I'll tell you why it is that we don't like you. Aside from the fact that you won't talk to us during davening, for 10 years now you've been coming to my house on Shabbat and holidays, he says, and just once tried to see it from my perspective. He goes on and he says, I am what sociologists and demographers would call a tired Jewish businessman. My fantasy of the ideal Friday night is to daven as fast as I can, to eat as fast as I can, and to jump under the covers, assume a pre-fetal position, and conk out until Shachras. But what happens when you come over to my house for Shabbat dinner? You want to sing Shalom Aleichem, then you want to sing Eshel Chayel, but because it's so beautiful you want to read it in English because it's so much more meaningful. 
And then we stay Kiddush, but then one of you go and you decide that you want to make your own Kiddush because you forgot to ask me before Kiddush if I have it in mind and you weren't sure if you had me in mind, you weren't sure if you had it in mind, so you make your own Kiddush. So, and you make the Kiddush at a rate of about three Hebrew words per minute. And then after washing, during the course of a conversation, usually mine, he goes on and says, you will interrupt me with undeniable sincerity and politeness and say, excuse me, but isn't what you're saying, Lashon Allah, isn't it gossip? And I pause and I say, you know what, you're right. I suppose you, you could say it's Lashon Allah. Fine, no more Lashon Allah. Then the meal goes on and you want to sing Zmirot. You want to sing Zmiras, but not just one, all of them. Then you want to do Divrei Torah, but not one Divrei Torah. You want to do everything that you ever heard. And then when the time comes for benching, you want to sing every single verse. And after all that, the meal is over. Very politely you come and you sit, tell me, thank you for having us. We would love to come next Shabbat. And you'll be back next Shabbat. But you see, it's not that we dislike you, chas v'shalom, says Mr. Gross. But rather it's that you make us uncomfortable. We're uncomfortable because after 20, 30, 40 years of saying Shmona Esrei three times a day, when we're with you, we sense that perhaps our Shmona Esrei has become flat, routine, mechanical, while yours is vital and exuberant. We're uncomfortable because we ask ourselves if we could do in our 20s, 30s, and 40s what you have done. Could we uproot our habits of a lifetime just to commit ourselves to Judaism? So I suppose the last analysis is that we're uncomfortable because you practice what we preach. By your, your enthusiasm, by your embrace of everything that is Jewish, you challenge us. By your insatiable thirst of knowledge, you provoke us. And by your open-hearted love affair with Judaism and everything about it, you ultimately shame us. This was his speech. And I want to just add, to all the Baal Tshuva out there, Please continue to provoke us and please continue to remind us of how one should do mitzvot and how one should daven and how one should have a Shabbat meal. But when you ask, what is a Baal Tshuva? You think about, okay, Baal Tshuva, you always think about somebody else. The Ger Rebbe, one of the Hasidic uh, rabbis of Jerusalem, once met a young man who was learning in yeshiva called Or Sameach. Or Sameach has a whole different types of varying group of people from different backgrounds, but mainly focuses on Baal Tshuva. So this man says to the rabbi, he says, I learn in Or Sameach, but I'm not a Baal Tshuva, he adds very quickly. So the rabbi looks at him, and he says, but why are you not a Baal Tshuva? Why are you not a Baal Tshuva? Because really, what is it? That no matter where we are, where we grew up, and how we are, we should always be a Baal Tshuva. We should always, Baal Tshuva means that we did Tshuva, we, we, we're a Baal, we owned the Tshuva, we came back from where we were, we grew. He says, everybody needs to be a Baal Tshuva. So when you listen to this type of story, this type of speech, it is so true. And I can tell you, I've been dealing with Balchubas for, what, 11 years or so now? And when you look at some, I still remember. You know what? He'll probably hear this. And he'll probably, I hope he'll laugh. I had a student of mine. It came very close with it. One of the first times he came to my house for a Friday night. I used to give uh, classes in my house every Friday night when I was in Brooklyn. And... I was sitting there and I give my speech and I have, you know, usually we put some food on the table, some drinks, and this boy was sitting right next to me. And he was just slowly, you know, becoming, you know, closer to Judaism. And he, I hear he takes like a cup of water, he makes a takes a drink, puts it back down. And then I hear him make, he wants to take another drink. So he makes another bacha, takes another drink. 
And he and, and, and I'm speaking while I'm seeing this. I'm like, okay, maybe I didn't remember. And then I kept my eye out to it, and then I saw he was doing it again. And I like I stopped him. I said, you know, you only have to say it once. You don't have to say it every time. This is a person that became a Balchuba, went to public school. And he wanted to do what's right, and he, what, he, what was right, what he thought was, this was such an inspiration to me. What he thought was right, that every time you take a bite, he took a chip, he made a bacha, he took a candy, he made a bacha, every single time. How inspirational is that? Like we forget when we have to, you know, when we're eating a full course you know, meal. This is the sincerity that Baal Tshuva is, is so powerful when you look at it. And you see a Baal Tshuva, you see people that go and they open up Yisidu for the first time. And they're reading. I have seen people, many of them my students that were praying Shemona Esai for 45 minutes. And they didn't even know how to read Hebrew. They were reading the English in it. The English transliteration of it. And they were sitting there slowly, every single word. The power of a Baal Tshuva is so amazing that it can inspire other people. So yes, maybe it can make the FFBs, the firm from birth, uncomfortable, but don't stop. Continue doing it. And this leads us to the first question of the four questions that we're going to ask tonight. And the first question is, has your performance of mitzvot become flat, mechanical, stale, robotic over the years of repetition? How is your mitzvot? Is your mitzvot like that of a Baal Tshuva? When you're sinning and you're praying, you're praying every single word. When you're about to eat, you almost want to say a every single time. Again, we don't do that. That's not the halacha. When you're going and you're learning to lie, you're thirsting for it. You want to... My first classes that I started giving was a Friday night class to a group of people, that, 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 a group of boys that were in you know, public school. Some were out of public school, some were still in public school. And they had such a thirst for Torah that we were learning, we started learning, I don't know, depending on if it was the summer or the winter, Friday nights, we would learn maybe, you know, start at 8 o'clock. And there are many nights that we went to 3 in the morning. And people fell asleep. And the second that I stopped talking, they jumped up like, no, no, continue. We sat there for hours and hours. They had such a thirst for learning. They didn't want to stop. They didn't want to stop. That's a Baal They know the flavor of it. So the question, the first of the four questions you have to ask yourself is how is the flavor in your Torah observance? Is it mechanical? Is it robotic? Or do you do it fresh like a Baal The second question that we should ask ourselves this coming Yom Kippur, or better yet, beforehand. What makes me happy? Now, there are many things that bring happiness, but what is the chief happiness, the chief joy in our life? The Rizal goes on and says that, all, unfortunately, all the curses in the Tochacha, in Parashat Kisavo, go and they, they've all been fulfilled. But in the, in, in the middle of enumerating all these calamities, the disasters, these sufferings that we have, the Torah attributes them to one cause. And if you want to look it up, it's in Devarim chapter 28, verse 47. And the reason for the curses and the suffering and the pain and the tribulations that we have to go through, it's because, Because you didn't serve God out of happiness. Says the Arizal. Says that our joy in mitzvot, you know what the problem is over here? Is not greater than our joy in other aspects, and other, you know, affluences, and other endeavors. 
we don't get judged by whether or not we'll just keep the mitzvot. That of course we'll get judged. But that's not the, the, it's not whether or not we're going to do it with happiness. But the real part is of where we're getting judged regarding this happiness aspect is does this happiness exceed the happiness of our luxuries, of our houses, of our cars, and of our vacations? If you're working, if you're a working person and you close a big deal and you get that excitement, is that the same excitement you get when you're sitting and you're learning Torah? Is that the same excitement that you get when you're saying something Hilim? Is that the same excitement that you get when you shake a lulav and a tog? Is that the same excitement that you get when you're sitting in the sukkah? When you book a vacation, all the planning and that excitement, how does that relate to when you pray that morning? You got buy a new car, a new phone, even a new shirt. You know what? Let's, let's dial it down. You're at a restaurant. You're kind of hungry. You ordered a meal. And you see the waiter walking along with your meal. That excitement that you have by you seeing your food, do you get that same excitement when you're walking to the synagogue to pray? Or when you're starting to pray, when you're starting to learn? Do you have that same joy when you're going and you're doing something that God asked you to do? Torah, mitzvot, anything. Where is the joy in comparison to that that we have in the joy in other areas in our lives? Is it greater or less than that? That is the second question that you need to ask yourself. The third question is a question that was asked of Yonah. And the captain of the ship saw Yonah sleeping. It's in, in, in Yonah chapter 1 verse 6. It says, The captain approached him, and says, What are you with a sleeping person? Why are you sleeping? There was a storm going around and you're sitting here sleeping at the deck. What's going on? We look in our lives, we look at through our history, there's, there's so much events that the whole world is turning upside down. And you could go back and you could look at even the, the aspect of Israel. You have, Iran, you have Iran, Hamas, Hezbollah, Al-Qaeda, terrorists, threats, tunnels, bombs. You know, you have non-stop stuff going on in that, in that sector of the world. Then you have anti-Semitism. A few years ago it was, it was like all over Europe and people were getting literally driven out of Europe. And we thought we're okay with that. We're okay, okay, it's in Europe, that's when it's bad. And all of a sudden there was a rise of anti-Semitism all of America. All these things that are turning, God is like turning the world upside down. And that wasn't enough, so God hit us with COVID. And apparently that wasn't enough, and then we had Meron, and we had Surfside. And the list goes on and on and on. And these things, they grab our attention for a while. They do. They wake us up for like a second. But when the show is over, when the media dies down about it, do we seriously think about the implications about anything that we're going to take out from it? We see in our own communities, tragedies, one after another. And if it's not someone close to us, so we'll say a capital of Tehillim, we'll say a few chapters of Tehillim, and we think that we did you know, something really good, and we'll move on with our life. But it doesn't... It doesn't affect us. God has turned the whole world. There's so much signs that are going around. And just like Yonah was asked, why are you sleeping? The same question that we have to ask ourselves, why are we sleeping? Don't you see the whole world is upside down? One thing after another is upside down. We still sleep. We're still staying the same way that we are. And by the way, it doesn't have to be a major sign. Even a small sign. There was a, 
fully secular woman living in Eretz Yisrael. She ended up moving to the outskirts of Bnei Brak. Whoever doesn't know Eretz Yisrael, Bnei Brak is a very, very religious community. And she was a very overprotective mother. And she didn't want her daughter traveling by bus far to school. So she decided she to, she's going to enroll her in a local close and school, which was obviously religious because the area was very, very religious. So the daughter started becoming more and more religious. One Friday, the daughter begged her mother, you know, let's light Shabbos candles. We know, and she sees, you know, in school they learn all about Shabbos candles, they learn all about Shabbos, they learn all about the halachot, and they see in the house she's not doing anything. She says, at least let's light candles. So the mother forcibly refused. She's like, absolutely not, we're not doing it, and you're not lighting it. She says, fine. Sometime goes by, and the little girl decides, you know what, she can't she hear so much about it. She needs to, hear, to light the Shabbat candles. So she goes over to the nearby grocery, and she asks, says, can I please have two Shabbat candles? So the grocer knows this girl, and he knows that it comes from a secular family. He says, why do they need Shabbat candles? They're not going <laughs> to, well, they don't light candles on Shabbat. He says, what she probably means is that her mother probably sent her for yard side candles. Candles that you light when a person passes away, sort of, uh, you know, whatever, I'm not going to get into all the details of it. A yard side candle. So, that night, it was Friday night, the little girl goes, and she decides she's going to light her candles, her Shabbat candles, in a room. And the mother was waiting, and the family was waiting for, uh, you know, for the dinner. And this little girl didn't, uh, didn't show up. She was still in a room. So the mother went to check on her, and she sees that she lit two candles, two yardside candles, and she's sitting over there, and she's davening by the candles. Little girl. So the mother goes over to her and says, What are you doing? Like, what, what's with these candles? And the little girl very innocently looks at her mother and says, oh, it's very simple. One is for you, mommy, and the other one is for daddy. She's thinking, Shabbat candles, one, two. But really, it's a yard side candles. Those are candles that you light after someone passes away. And this hit the mother like a ton of bricks. This, the mother from somehow was able to piece it together that living a secular life is like being dead in this world. Whatever changed her life, that moment she decided she's going to become religious. And that like turned her life around. And she ended up becoming becoming fully religious. We don't need to go only and see the topsy-turvy, the, the craziness of Hamas and Iran, and who knows what nuclear weapons and North Korea and everything bad that's happening. We could also look at the simple little signs. And trust me, they're plentiful all over. Of where Hashem goes and says, Hey, wake up. Look in the mirror. Look in the mirror and ask yourself the question, Why are you asleep? What's going on? Why can't you wake up? Rabbi Yitzhak Eisesher was once addressing a group of rabbis, retired rabbis. It was on right before Rosh Hashanah. And he told them that they should not be too complacent about a favorable judgment. And he tells them, he says, he says you know, you guys are all righteous people. You know, you don't do any sins. You're fine Jews. But let's say you pick up the New York Times one morning. And you read that a man was killed. And you drink your coffee and you move on with your day. But the question says, Rabbi Isaac, it's like Isaac Sherazah, how can you drink coffee? How can you do it? There was a man that was killed. A woman now became a widow. Children became orphans. They now lost their father. You should faint in anguish, but you do not. Why? Because we do not care enough on how that death affects that with other people. The Chafetz Chaim says in Avas Chasid, so that we have the means to reverse strict heavenly judgment by showing the same kindness to others that we beg HaKadosh Baruch Hu to show us. All we have to do is show kindness to others the way that we want kindness to be shown to us.
When we show concern of the people that are suffering, the people that are going through hard times, that will affect the judgment up above. So the third question that we're asking is that why are we sleeping? Why can't we wake up? Why is it that we see all the craziness in the world and why is it that we haven't changed the way that we ought to? The fourth question and the final question is a question that when I was learning this threw me off a little bit. But as I understood it, how amazing is this question? And the question is, am I really yearning for Mashiach? We know that Gemara tells us that after 120, there's going to be a final exam up in heaven. And we're going to be asked four questions, four main questions. That's how we're going to start. The question number one is, did you conduct your business affairs honestly? That's question number one. Question number two, did you set aside, set aside time for learning Torah? Question number three, did you occupy yourself with having and raising children? That's question number three. And finally, the question number four, did you eagerly anticipate the final redemption? If you can answer in the affirmative for all these four questions, you have a good seat in Gan Eden. But when we analyze these four questions, the first three... This is something that we deal with. It's something that we've prepared a lot in this world. You know, the, you conduct your business affairs honestly. There's a lot of books and sfarim and lectures on what? On, on business ethics. And we try to do everything to the most ethical way that we can. The next question is, did you spend time learning Torah? We have the amount of time, of, of, of time spent learning Torah nowadays surpassed what we had 50 years ago, 60 years ago. So we could technically say, check on those two things as a community. The third question is, did you, you know, did you deal with, occupy with children? And of course, children is not always in our control, but did you try to have children? And the answer is yes. You look at the community. The community at large is no other subgroup in America that has as many children as religious Jews do. Or, for that matter, make sacrifices to provide a particular type of uh, education to their children. So yes, while we can't say that we everybody has children because it's all in God's hand, but we definitely try to it. People get married young, people try to have children, you know, they have, you know, Baruch Hashem, large families. Those are the first three questions. And when we look at these three questions, there's a very, very common thread that runs through them. They all have to do with our daily lives. Business, Torah, children. Daily lives, day to day, you're always dealing with this. The questions do not focus on like yearly events. They do not focus on how great your Yom Kippur was. They do not focus on did you eat matzah and pesach? Did you sit on a sukkah on sukkot? Did you, uh, you know, uh, eat cheesecake on shavuot? I'm saying that as a joke. But whatever it is, it doesn't focus on like, like things that just like once a year. It focuses on something that is daily. So if this is true for the first three questions, then it's also true for the fourth question, and that is did you anticipate the Mashiach? Do you anticipate the salvation? You have to go and you wake up in the morning thinking this could be the day. This could be the day that Mashiach comes. You have somebody who's a captive. And there was, you know, Rabbi Fran was speaking to somebody whose wife was captive for six years. Every single night she went to sleep thinking tonight is a night that my husband could be released. Tonight is a night, night that he could be freed. This is how we should think about Mashiach as we go to bed. It says, tonight is the night, tomorrow is the day that Mashiach is going to come. And when we look at our history, the Jews didn't always have such a hard time looking forward for Mashiach. 
So we had a very, very tough history. There was the Crusades, the Inquisition, the Holocaust, the list goes on and on, and how much massacres, pogroms, and exiles that we had to go out of. And we could see, when we go through difficulties, there's a strong desire for Mashiach to come. And the, the desire is not just something with the words. You look at the example, anybody who knows the history of Shabtai Tzvi, the false you know, Messiah, the false Mashiach, Shabtai Tzvi, he convinced people that he was the, the Mashiach, and communities sold their homes, sold their assets in preparation for their imminent deliverance of Mashiach is coming. Meaning that it wasn't just lip service. They believed it wholeheartedly. They went and they said, this is it, Mashiach is coming. Do we have that anticipation? Rabbi Shimon Schwab goes and gives an example. Says that, imagine you go to a wedding and everybody is dressed to the tea and they have a 13-piece band they have crazy photographers with the arcs and the moving machinery. And they have the smorgasbord over there that's out of this world. Everything is impeccable. Everything is amazing. But there's one thing that's missing. And that is the bride. The bride didn't show up. It says, how could you have a wedding, no matter how nice it is, no matter how amazing everything is going, if the bride isn't there, there is no wedding. Says Reb Shimon Schwab, the way that the world is without Mashiach is like a wedding without a bride. There was once a boy in camp and he, the, the learning Rebbe had a very hard time engaging this boy in learning. He was always spaced out. He was not, never interested. He was always daydreaming. One day, the Rebbe starts speaking about rebuilding the base of Megdash. Suddenly the boy perks up and he, and he looks at, he's like, wait a minute, you really? So he started filling with so many questions. He had so, he paid so, so much attention. Do you remember that Beis Amedes is going to be rebuilt and Mashiach is going to come and it's going to come within a year and it's going to come? He was going on and on on how, uh, you know, on how it, all these exciting questions that he had on Mashiach. And the Rebbe answered to the best of his ability, but the Rebbe was very bothered by it. He says, the guy was sleeping the whole year, the whole summer. All of a sudden I give one class of Mashiach and then he perks up and that's why he wakes up. So he goes over to the camp director and he says, you know, what's up with this kid? That Why is he so, you know, enthusiastic about Mashiach topic? And the camp director was able to shed a little bit of light on this. He said, you see, this boy is an orphan. This boy lost his parents. And he knows that after Mashiach comes, there's going to be Tchiat HaMetim. There's going to be the revival of the dead, the resurrection of the dead. And he's going to see his parents again. So the boy needed Mashiach because he needed his parents. So he knew that something was missing in his life. And that translated that sense of lacking something into some sort of excitement for Mashiach. And, and many times the way that you go and you see the excitement of Mashiach is when people are going through difficulties. That's, when they get, that's only when they get excited for Mashiach. They're going, they lost a loved one. So they're like, yeah, Mashiach is going to come because I'm going to come see him back. So what, what are you excited for? You're not excited for Mashiach per se. I mean, of course you are. But the real excitement is because you want to see your relative. You lost a lot of money. You don't have any children. You have a health issue. The, the list goes on and on. And we want Mashiach. But the question that you have to ask yourself is, is why? Do you want it so that you'll be wealthy? Do you want it that you'll be powerful? Do you want it that you'll have children? Do you want it that you'll you know, have, get married? What is the reason that you want it? Now again, if that's a catalyst for you to get into Mashiach, by all means. I'm not saying you shouldn't utilize it. But the bottom line is, 
is that if you anticipate Mashiach only at a certain point in your life, and then you stopped anticipating Mashiach, that means that that anticipation of Mashiach is very likely wasn't for the true sense of Mashiach, but rather was from other circumstances that you wanted Mashiach to come. So the fourth question that we ask is, Tzapita Yeshua, do you eagerly anticipate the Yeshua? Rabbi Pesach Groen goes and brings a very, very interesting point. He says, we know when we pray in Shemona Asai for the re-establishment of the, of the Davidic dynasty, as Tzemach David, we pray in Shemona Asai. It's something that, that sticks out very differently than other, the, the other blessings. So I'll give you an example. The other blessing, for example, forgiveness. We say, that, we say at the end of the blessing, we say, we say, that we tell God that you're the one who grants forgiveness. When we pray for health, we say, You are a God, a king that's faithful and the merciful healer. You're the one who's going to heal. But when we come to Es Tzemach David, the reestablishment of the Davidic dynasty, which is obviously Mashiach. And this, we do not conclude that you are the God who brings Mashiach. We would assume that you would go across, you know, the same, the same, uh, uh, the same theme that you asked or something, and that you're the God who can give it. But over here, David, we finish off by saying, For your salvation, we hope all day. And the answer is something fascinating. Why is this different? Because the coming Mashiach is not just depending on Hashem. But rather, it's depending on the hope that you have for Mashiach. And let me explain that. The base of Levi, Rav Yosef Ber Salavechik, before he became the Rav in Brisk, he was a Rav in a different place and he didn't have a good experience. And he decided he's going to retire from the Rabbanut. He's not going to be Rav anymore. He's going to focus on you know, spiritual growth in, a, you know, in his own area, but not as, as, as a rabbi of a community. They... Uh, approached him from Brisk, and they said, listen, you know, we want to make you the rabbi of Brisk. And he says, no, I retired from this. And they were relentless. They didn't just give up and be like, okay, the rabbi said, no, no, that means no, no. So they go over to him and says, wait a minute. He says, there's 20,000 Jews in Brisk that are waiting for you to become thereof. 20,000 people. How can you refuse? So the Beis Alevi, he didn't have an answer. And he agreed to become the rabbi of Brisk. When the Chafetz Chaim heard the story, he cried. And he goes, says the Chavetz Chaim, do we imagine that Mashiach is less sensitive than the Beis Alevi? The Beis Alevi couldn't say, there's 20,000 Jews waiting for me. How am I not going to you know, go to them if, that's, if they're waiting for me? So what do I mean? Mashiach, you have millions of people who are praying for his coming. So how could he be delaying? Why is he not coming? Answers the Chavetz Chaim. And Chafetz Chaim says that there are not 20,000 Jews really waiting for Mashiach. And that's what we have to change. So when we ask ourselves, do you anticipate the Mashiach? Tzipita Yeshua. We really have to ask ourselves, yeah, we may say we want Mashiach, we may sing the songs, we may do whatever it is that we're doing, but we do we really want Mashiach? And when I was learning this, I was thinking, you know, like why this is such a crucial aspect to ask on Yom Kippur? I thought this is a great idea, but why would, why, why would this stick out of like the top four that our fan picked? And as I was thinking about it, there's one thought that came to me. It says, when you're doing something, and if you think, wait a minute, what if Mashiach is about to come? And I'm about to do what I'm about to do. 
Like, is that going to be, like, do I, am I happy with that? Or, like, wait a minute, if Mashiach comes, I can't be watching a movie. If Mashiach comes, I can't be, you know, listening to non-Jewish music. If Mashiach comes, I can't be dressed like this. If Mashiach comes, I have to make sure that I make all the barachot. I have to make sure that if I'm praying, I'm praying the right way. So when you're thinking that, wait, you're thinking your mindset is, oh, if Mashiach is coming any moment, everything that you're doing is going to a higher level. What do you mean Mashiach is coming? Mashiach is coming. You're talking about a prophet that's coming. You're talking about the, 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 the glory of God is going to be descended onto this world. The whole world will know God. There's a difference of how we do our day-to-day activities when we realize Mashiach is coming. There was a Jew that went over to a rabbi. He says, Rabbi, is Mashiach coming this year? So he says, what's the difference if it's coming this year now? What's the difference? He says, very simple, Rabbi. He says, I leave my store open on Shabbat. But if Mashiach is coming, I can't leave my store open on Shabbat. So if you're always thinking that Mashiach is coming, your observance, your level is going to be so much higher. So the four questions that you should really ask yourself on Yom Kippur, but really it should be before Yom Kippur. And we'll work backwards. The fourth one, am I really yearning for Mashiach? Like really? Are you? The third question is the question that was asked to Yonah. Why are you asleep? Why are we asleep? God is sending us signs. Why are we asleep? We have to go and we have to wake up. The second question we have to ask is our joy in mitzvot equal or greater than our joy in other areas of our life? And finally, the first question that we ask ourselves, meaning that we're going backwards, is our performance of mitzvot. Is it like a Baal Shuvah? Or is it become routine, mechanical? And if it's not, better make sure that we try to change it. These are four questions that we should walk into this coming, the next you know, few days that we have before Yom Kippur, and really think about it and contemplate it. And say, you know, like maybe I could tighten myself in one or all four of these areas. Let us open up for some questions. Okay, first question is, why do we... Why do we make such a point that we dive in so hard only on Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur if we really could change Xerah at any time? So, so, okay, so let's try to understand this, this decree. If, and I'll, I'll answer that question with a, with a, uh, with a story. There was once a, there was once a, two, two countries that were at war with each other and they were bordering each other. And one country was, there was no cemetery at the end of it, and they had to use the cemetery on the other side, which is the, the one that they were fighting the war with. But they made some sort of a, you know, agreement that, you know, be, because they're civilians that, you know, pass away and they need to bury them. So they made an agreement that they're able to go back and forth, the, back and forth with the border and able to bury the dead in the cemetery. And obviously there were soldiers on, you know, you know, on the, on, on the post guarding the area. And one of the persons over there decided, you know, this is a great idea. He says they see caskets going in and out. He says, during war, it's very hard to transport product because it's war. He says, here, I could smuggle product into the other, into other country and no one will know I'll put it in the casket. And then I'll be able to take it out and I'll be able to sell there for a great profit because nobody's able to sell the product that I'm able to bring. So you had this guy that kept on going with the group of people and he was going back and forth with funerals. And all of a sudden, the guard stops him stops this entourage and be like, okay, we need to open up this casket. Be like, open up the casket. It's not according to the law of our religion. You can't start opening up the casket over here. And the guard would refuse to go. He says, no, we're opening up the casket. We have to see what's inside. We're suspicious of all your activities. And the guy starts crying. 
And he says, please, you can't open up, because he knows that if they open up and they see that he's smuggling contraband over there, they're going to kill him. So the soldier looks at him and he says, now you're crying? He says, now you're crying? He says, now while we're, while, when we stop you? He says, you want to know what took this out? He says, we keep on seeing you coming back and forth. He says, never once do you shed a tear. He says, this is a funeral. He says, why are you not crying? Why are you not sad that somebody died? You're going to bury somebody, you're not sad? If you would have cried beforehand, I would have never stopped you. But you're crying now, now it's too late. Now open up. So when we go and we pray, and we have something that was decreed on Rosh Hashanah, and yes, that we have the ability to go and make the change on Yom Kippur, but it's much more difficult to change something once it's written, once it gets caught. If you cry beforehand, you have more of a chance of having a successful judgment, a successful thing. So even after Yom Kippur, we have the ability to change to a certain extent also, depending on Chuvat, Tefillat, Tzedakah, we have the ability to, but it gets more difficult. So we want to start early, and we want to make sure that we're doing the right thing, especially now we have South Yemei We want to try to do the best that we can. So if, you know, whatever it is that you, wherever level you're, you're on, at least for a little bit, try to take on a little bit extra during these days. Okay, next question. Regarding Mashiach, I read that Mashiach will come in a generation that is either entirely wicked or entirely righteous. Does that mean that literally every person has to be one way or the other? So, not necessarily. There's, there's a lot of ways to explain that. Um, it, the the Gemara goes and says that uh, the Mashiach is going to come either when a generation is Kulei Zakai or Kulei Chayef. Meaning that when you think about it, how can a generation be completely righteous or completely wicked? You always have somebody in the middle. So one interpretation that I heard that, that really, you know, I really liked and I really see the, the truth of it, um, because you see it nowadays, is that it will be a generation where you're going to have two people on the polar sides. People are going to think that they're completely righteous or they think they're completely wicked, meaning that there's not going to be anybody saying, you know what, I'm in the middle. You look at people and be like, me and God, we have an understanding. The last class that we gave, uh, wasn't actually, it wasn't actually in this group, it was a different group. But the last class that I posted online was, me and God, we have an understanding. Cause oh, we, you know, we're, we're okay. Completely righteous, completely wicked also mean in a person's mind, not in the sense of what God, what God looks at, because again, you'll always have people in the middle. So really it's in a sense of where a person feels, you know, in it. Okay. Um, Next question, how do you get this excitement to do mitzvot when we're really doing them daily? So that's a great, great question. How, how do you get to that excitement? So one of the things that I would recommend is, it's very difficult to be like, okay, you know what, I'm going to be excited about everything. It's, and you could try it, it's very difficult. But I would say to start off with one thing. And the way that you should start it off by, and how you should try to tackle this, is try to, to think about it before you do it. So let's say, for example, you're about to pray, and you want to get excited for prayer. So you, you don't just go to pray, you think, give a few minutes, you'll be like, okay, I'm about to pray to God, who is the creator of the entire world, who has the ability to give me everything, gives me the opportunity to pray to Him, and you start going through this thought process in your mind, and be like, I have an opportunity that I'm able to speak to the most powerful being that was, that was is, and ever will be. And you sort of try to understand of what you're about to do. So before you do something, and that's why, you know, especially, you know, the Kabbalist and also many, many Hasidim, what they do is before they do a certain mitzvah, they do something called Leshem Yechud. There's a prayer that they say before they do a certain mitzvah. What is one of the reasons that they do that? Is that they go 
and, and really everybody should do that. You go and you start realizing what you're about to do. So you're about to shake a lulav and a talk soon. So you're going and you're starting saying, L'shem Yichud, you're about to do this mitzvah and you're concentrating about it. So you're starting to be able to realize what you're doing. When it's mechanical, when you're just doing things without thinking. But if you stop for a second and you think for a second, that will give you the boost to able to make it happier. Again, there's many, many things that we could go and discuss about it. You know, increasing your joy, your happiness through gratitude. There's different ways that we could go uh, through about it, through through that. But this is, I think, is a good place to start. Next question is, when will this share be posted? That's a good question. My computer is slow when I edit it. So it really depends on when, once the editing takes time. Sometimes the editing it takes like 24 hours. I don't, my computer is really slow. So in Merit Hashem, I hope this, the, the sooner the better. Okay, next question. I learned in school that when something bad happens, it means that we need to look into our deeds and see what we did wrong and do tshuva. But on the other hand, I once heard a speaker saying, why is it that when something bad happens, people blame it on themselves? Let's say you missed a plane. Instead of beating yourself up and thinking it's all your fault, think Hashem is giving me an Nisayan and He wants me to pass this test with a Muna. So how do I know when to look at a challenge, challenges as a punishment for what I did wrong or just as an Nisayan that Hashem wants me to pass with Amuna and grow from it? Excellent question. That is a great, so, so nicely, you know, articulated. Thank you for that question. So the question like this, there's, there's two, uh, you know, when you have a test, we know it says, um, if someone sees that there's suffering that is coming upon him, he has to go and he has to look into his deeds. And so maybe why if something bad is happening, you have to look in your deeds. But on the other hand, maybe it's a test. Maybe it's a test to see how you're going to go and how are you going to react to this with the Muna. And the answer really is that it doesn't really matter because the result of how you're going to respond to it is going to be the same. And I'll, let me explain that. So what you're supposed to do is, is if something bad, God forbid, happens, you're supposed to, the, the, there is an acceptance aspect to, towards it. And that's where the Muna comes in. You accept it. Be like, listen, you let this happen. And I accept that this is from the best. That's step one. Now step two, now that I accept it already, okay, now I have to think, now why did it happen? So we're, now you fresh fresh with myself, now I have to go and start looking into, okay, why did it happen? Why was this the best that I had something bad happen? It must be that I had to change something in my, in my character traits or in my act or in my, you know, Ben Gavr the Gavr, whatever it is, I have to change something. So it's not a contradiction, but it's rather, rather both of those aspects do come into play when you go and you have to deal with something that is tragic or something that is difficult that comes across your path. No, not a problem. Okay, it was another, it was another apology. It was an apology. Thank you for uh, being the moderator. Yes, I figured also. Okay, I just didn't want to mention it on, you know, on camera. Because you have your name as just one letter. Well, now everybody knows what it is. But whatever. Okay. So thank you. Um, where do we learn about those four questions when we enter heaven? I haven't heard. I've heard a thousand plus near-death experience. And not one person has been asked those questions. Just wanted to learn, just wanted to learn it all. Thanks. Wow. That's pretty impressive. You learned over a thousand near-death experience. So these are questions that's based off the Gemara. The Gemara goes and says there's four questions. I believe the Gemara in Shabbat, if my memory serves me correctly. Um, but don't quote me on that because I may be wrong with that. It may not be in Shabbat. I think it is. But it's... Um, it's I'm not trying to challenge you or anything. I just I want to read that because I hadn't heard that. And maybe that's questions that are asked to the Jewish people and not to 
every day Joe Blow. I'm not. Oh no, it's only questions. I just want to learn. It's only questions. No, of course not, sure. It's only questions that are asked. Um, that are asked. To the, these are specifically for the Jewish people because the non-Jews do not have. Um, they do not have uh, what's it called? They do not have uh, you know to learn Torah. They don't have these obligations. So. So it happens to be there's a little bit more to the questions. There are four questions. There really, there really more. It is a Gemara Shabbat. It's a Gemara Shabbat, page thirty-one. If you want to look it up, um, and and the the if you want to look at all the questions, the question number one is: Did you uh, do business faithfully? You know, did you do business uh, faithfully? Number two: Did you fix time for a Torah study? Number three is: Did you involve with uh, children and being fruitful and multiplying? Number four: Did you anticipate the salvation? There was also. The fifth one, which gets a little bit more complicated for people to understand, did you intellectually engage in pursuing wisdom and understanding a thing within a thing? And you're going to start asking what that is. So that's something that you have to go. And the last one is, which is, are you in awe of heaven? Of in, of heaven? Were you in awe in heaven? Did you have this like a fear or awe of heaven? So yeah, you can look at it, the Gemara Shabbat, page thirty one. Um, and uh, there it could go into into detail, but the ones that are, speak to the common people are the uh, are the first four that we uh, we mention. But no, please, you know, speak about it. And, oh, I want to I want to add one point. So when you ask about the near death experience, so the near death experiences they don't always go into a full judgment, meaning that uh, forever doesn't know where this is. Just tune out for a short period of time and then do back in. So. Um, a lot of the times of the near-death experience is just the beginning of the journey. It's not where they actually go and they have the full-fledged uh, judgment. And in many times, if they have the full-fledged judgment, they many times they do not remember everything that is that is brought down. They remember only bits and pieces of it. But this is the question that is asked, um, uh, you know, after a person dies, after 120. The final answer that I'll give you is that when somebody has a near-death experience, that means that they didn't, they, they weren't planned, like, to come back to this world. So this is a question that is asked after the completion of your test in this world. Not where you get a sneak preview on what's going on and then you come back. Okay. But yeah, if you want to look it up, Shabbat 31. It's kind of like, uh, you know, coming back from Israel, I was went to the airport in Paris, France. But did I see Paris, France? No, I just saw the airport. Right, right. Yeah, I guess that's a good example. That's a good way of explaining it. Yeah, that's a nice way of explaining it. Okay, um, next question. Can you ask God to forgive someone else? Will he listen if you ask him to forgive another person? So you're asking, let's say, let's say, let's say um, Mrs. X did a sin, and you're asking God to forgive Mrs. S for the sin? Was that the question? If not, please clarify that. Um, because you can't get, you could pray for a merit for somebody else, but tshuva is something that, tshuva and, and really tikkunim and a fixing of the soul has to come from the person themselves. They can't, somebody else can't fix it. it you think about it, someone could go into surgery and the surgeon could fix them. But when you're fixing a soul, you can have merit to help you fix it, but at the end of the day, you really need to fix it yourself. Okay, next question. Uh, where are we over here? Okay, here. Are, oh, 
Are hatarat nidarim and kol nidre basically the same? If so, why do we have to say hatarat nidarim if we say kol nidre on the night of Yom Kippur? So that's a good question. The difference of what hatarat nidarim is where you say it on Erev Rosh Hashanah and, 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 um, and kol nidre, we say it on Yom Kippur. Yeah, there is a difference and you look at the text, you can actually see the difference, uh, you know, in it. <laughs> Thank you for your kind words after that. Yeah. How does the first question, okay, here we have a question. How does the first question sound again? The, the, the first question, no, no, the first question of our share. So I'm assuming the first question of, of the four questions that we ask is how is your observance in the mitzvot? Do you do it very stale, very uh, robotic-like, or do you do it in a way that you're very uh, enthusiastic, like a Balchuba, we gave the example. If you know someone, as uh, the last question, if you know someone says Hareini Mochel at night, do you need to ask him for Mechila? Generally, yes. <laughs> That's a great question. Uh, you could convince somebody, hey, by the way, you should say the full Kriyashma. So, because if you, what happens is, if you, for those who are not aware, when you say, um, when you say Kriyashma Lamita, part of it is that you forgive everybody. Hareini Mochel, Mochel, You know, and there's a whole, this, uh, you know, there's a whole section in the beginning of Kriyashma that you say to that person. So, so even if the person does say it, uh, you should still ask him for mechila. Yes, you should. Okay. Oh, we had another question that just came in. If someone is asking for forgiveness before Yom Kippur, but, and I still can't forgive because it's a very big problem, is it on me or on that person? That is a good question. I, and the answer is a very simple answer, but the only reason why I hesitate is because it's an emotional question. Um, so... Uh, let me explain to you like this. I, I understand some things are very, very hard to forgive. You know, trust me. Like, I, I, I'm very well aware uh, that there's some things that are very difficult to forgive. But just like what we said, especially based off the Chafetz Chaim, the way that we treat others, that's the way God treats us. We want God to forgive us. We've done things that we are not proud, that we want forgiveness, that we want tikkunim, that we want tshuva on, that we want to change, that we want to improve on. And we want God to forgive us. So if we're going and we cannot forgive to somebody else, then measure for measure, God can say, listen, you're not forgiving this person, why should I forgive you? Now again, I'm not saying that's the way that works, but a good, powerful tool that you'll have in your side is that if you have somebody that you don't want to forgive and you work on yourself to forgive that person, that will come to a great benefit for you on Yom Kippur. Because you could, you know, the power of that will be like, the, the angels go and be like, listen, this person didn't want to forgive it. The person didn't deserve to be forgiven. But the person, this, you know, you did forgive them. So, so too that God, you should also forgo and forgive this person for all that they did, even though they don't deserve to be forgiven. What, why do you have to ask if they already gave, forgave in Harini Mochel? Uh, because it depends on how they say Harini Mochel. Uh, for somebody who goes and says Harini Mochel, the truth of the matter is, is that if let's say you go, and you did something bad to somebody, and you cannot find this person in the world. Like, you can't, I don't know, they, they, now they work undercover for the CIA, and they're living in Afghanistan, in the Taliban, you, can't, you just can't get a hold of them, you'll never be able to find them. What are you supposed to do? How do you ask someone forgiveness? So you pray and pray to God, that God should put it in their heart to go and forgive you. And forgive you. But, where you have the ability to go and ask for forgiveness, even though they forgive you, you should still ask for, uh, for forgiveness. Because you never know for sure how much they went and they forgive you. You have to do your part in it. And it really 
it, it really one of the aspects of forgiveness is that it helps a person be able to forgive. When somebody when somebody comes over to you and be like, "Listen, I'm really sorry for what I did. It really bothers me. I'm really sorry. Can you please forgive me?" That gives you a, that gives the other person a catalyst and be like, "You know what? Like, yeah, okay, I forgive you." you no, know, like they see how much it bothers you and they realize that they, they you know they did something wrong, so in their heart they forgive you more wholesomely, more willingly, let's call it. Uh, we had another question that came in. Oh, here's, oh wait, no, two more questions. Do you have to let the person know you forgave them or can it just be thought process? Or So it depends. If a person asks you if you forgave them, you should say, Machalach, you should say that you forgave them. If they didn't ask you, you don't have to start calling everybody. Be like, hey, by the way, remember when you uh, embarrassed me in public? Oh, yeah, don't worry about it, I forgive you. Yeah, no, 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 no biggie. Just don't worry about it. I just want to let you know I forgive you. You know, like, you don't have to do it to that extent, but if they come and they ask you, you should definitely tell them that you do forgive them. Next question is, are the four questions are the same for each person? What if someone never had children? So, yes, the four questions are for, it's because, so it's not only, it's a sakta that you deal in children, in children, meaning that it's not only having children, but it's also if, you know, to helping people get married is also associated there. Helping people with, uh, you know, people don't have money and you're giving them to help raise their children, whatever it is. It's not only your own children. It's a very, very broad question that it goes on different things with shiduchim, with children, uh, you know, even, you know, dating. So there's a lot of different uh, things that encapsulate that question. Okay, it looks like this is the last question. Hashem isn't physical and has no human characteristics. So what does it mean that God loves us which is a human feeling. So whenever we go and we have um, these attributes of God, for example, Yad uh, Chazakah, strong arm, uh, anger, happiness, love, you know, like hatred, these are terminologies, uh, sort of anthropomorphic ideas that we as human beings can relate to God. So it's not the part of God is just in a bad mood. God forbid, you know, like that's not that, but it's the way that we can relate to God, and that's just how we understand it. So it's not like when the Torah says and says that God has, you know, a strong arm, doesn't mean that he has strong muscles on the arm. The God, God doesn't have a form. So one of the 13 principles of faith is that God has no form. God is not human, has no human characteristic. There's nothing, you know, about God that's, that's human, but even though it's B'Tzel and we're not going to get to the whole differentiation of that, but God doesn't have any form. But the way that we could understand God is way through these, the, these, these, um, examples, it's, uh, not the, these anthropomorphic, you know, ideas that we have on it. Okay. Sorry, I missed the part about asking forgiveness. Are we supposed to call everybody we know to ask for forgiveness. So only people that you may have hurt, you don't have to call everybody. People now do this mass text thing, which a lot of people were like, oh, that's such a dumb thing to do. I don't know. I was never against it. I mean, it's it's impersonal, yes, but at least it's something. Uh, so I don't think you have to call everybody in your phone. Well, be it. By the way, just in case I ever messed everything up, you forgive me. Generally, what you should do is that if you know that you, you think about it, and be like, you know what, I embarrassed this person, I did this, I stole this, I did that, I didn't take back. And that's when you're supposed to go, and you're supposed to ask those people for forgiveness. You don't have to just go down your telephone book and just call everybody, and uh, be like, just in case I ever did anything to you. I mean, it's nice, but you don't, uh, you know, some people will be more annoyed than that, than more uh, anything else. Okay, that looks like that was the final question. So thank you all for joining. I'm actually quite impressed, surprised, and happy that there was such a big turnout for a um, you know for for a class after a fast day, which I know is very very difficult. So I applaud each and every single one of you for making it. 
and for kind of convincing me to make it, for those of you that did. So thank you very much. And uh, I wish you all a gmach a sealed judgment for the most amazing, successful, happy, wealthy, whoever needs children with children, and whoever needs a shiduch with shiduch, just like an amazing year all around. And Bezat Hashem, may we have Mashiach coming, and may we be able to anticipate the, the Yeshua, anticipate the Mashiach, and really go through those four questions, and really bring us up to the level that we really bring the Mashiach this year, or even before Yom Kippur, and we really see the Gula b'meira b'amenu. Uh, wait, we had another question that came in. Is it okay to text to ask for forgiveness? It's impersonal, so it depends on the depends on the problem that was caused. If it's something small, then be like, hey, by the way, I'm sorry I did something small, you know, like, then it's fine. But it's uh, um, things, you know, big, you should probably call. And for the person said, the Lamar, Amen, thank you. All right, thank you all. You've just experienced another Torah class brought to you by TorahAnytime.com.